Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. All right, guys, this week we're popping bottles. We're getting into some bubbles. We're talking English fizz. The sparkling wine of England is something that I've always followed very closely over the past four years. Last year, I got to spend some time on the southern coast of England, and I met with a bunch of different producers, and what struck me was the stylistic diversity and pragmatic innovation that's going on at all of these estates. So to talk about the way this emerging wine region has thrived amidst Brexit negotiations, increasing temperatures, and a changing marketplace, I called up Laura Rees, a master sommelier based in the UK who works for Gusborn, one of the country's top estates. We've got a lot to talk about, so we'll just jump right into the conversation that Laura and I recorded last week. How have you been? How are You guys are going through another shutdown right now in London, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, we are. We, um, in the whole of the UK, well, no, in the whole of England at the moment, uh, hmm. the lockdown, um, which started last week and then will run until hopefully only the 2nd of December. And then we'll I feel back. like your version of a lockdown is maybe different than what a Texas version of a lockdown is. Ours might be a little more laissez-faire, maybe not as well enforced, at least at the moment, you know? Well, I don't know. After middle of January, maybe lockdowns will be a little different here in the US than they've been before. But um, mm. what is what does a lockdown entail right now for y'all? Uh, for us, um, so all hospitality is closed. All non-essential retail is closed. You can do takeaway. So some restaurants are doing takeaway, which is great. And they'll do takeaway alcohol too, which is, mm. uh, which is helpful. You can only meet one other person outside of your household and then advise to work from home. But you mm. can, uh, if you have to go uh, to, to the office or, or to work somewhere else, then you can. Um, supermarkets are still open pharmacies are still open um, but it feels different from the last lockdown the lockdown in spring I think people were taking it probably a little bit more seriously I feel like I feel like more people are bending the rules this time things feel a little bit finding finding some sort of loophole here or there yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And what about you guys? How is it for you in, in Texas? Um, in Texas, you know, so our lockdowns ended pretty early compared to the rest of the country, right? Like at the end of April is when the governor's kind of mandate had ended because um, yeah. every governor kind of got to set their own rules. So things started picking up in May. And then I remember it was um, Memorial Day weekend when things were really popping off and you'd see photos at, you know, bars or clubs even where people were just like congregating in massive numbers. And inevitably we saw a huge spike in the month of June, especially where things were just going crazy. And that's when I actually hightailed it out of town. I have family in Massachusetts. So I spent the month of July just up there and it was great to just get out of Texas while things were popping. And now it's weird. We're having more cases than we've ever had before, but people are just very chill about it, it seems, you know, but people are drinking a lot. I know that much. There's lots of wine getting consumed, people buying wine retail. Restaurants Mm -hmm. here in Texas uh, are able to operate at around 50% capacity. And this is like perfect patio weather for us. Like summer is not when you want to be on a patio in Houston. Um, But right now, We're at the tail end of hurricane season, so it hasn't rained a lot lately. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think today it's seven. I'm looking out the window. It's like 75 degrees, like a small smattering of clouds. I mean, the past week has been just like beautiful and gorgeous. And I'm sure that every patio has been super swamped. So, Oh, that sounds very dreamy, that weather, compared to to today's weather in London. Yeah, is it just pretty classically London right now? Pretty rainy right now. Yeah. I feel like I lucked out when I was there in April last year. The weather was great for the most part, I think. I think it like drizzled a little bit the morning of the marathon, but then it cleared up and it was nice. So, Oh, yeah. yeah. How was the marathon? I haven't asked you about that. Man, it was so much fun. Um, honestly, some of the best crowds, I think maybe the best crowd that I've ever had for a race was mm-hmm. the London Marathon. And what everyone reminded me is that for y'all, it's like, the Boston Marathon, the New York Marathon, the Chicago Marathon, like kind of all combined into one. And because it's such a big fundraising marathon, right? The majority of people that run it are doing it for charity. There's a lot of people that do it in costumes or raising money for a good cause, which just brings everyone out. 
but every kilometer like every part of the race there were people like on both sides cheering you on i mean i've run marathons where you go like you know a mile or two without seeing anybody or it's just like a small group of people with like a one flimsy sign here it was like everybody was out everyone was cheering you on people were drinking it was great it was super fun oh good well, i'm glad you enjoyed it hopefully you can come back and do it again soon i'd love to i mean uh it was it was a blast i had a really good time and then before and after the race you know eating and drinking really well the week before was all visiting you know wineries on the southern coast but then after the race was like parting it up in london i think the two highlights were the meal at noble rot the og location because the new one hadn't opened yet and then brat was fantastic i really enjoyed that yes Two definite highlights in London at the moment, for sure. Well, and normally during the year, you travel a little bit for work, right? I mean, yeah, you were at Texom last year, right? No, I wasn't. I was supposed to be, but then in the end, I, it was uh, it was too close to delivery date and I didn't mm. want to fly. So uh, I didn't go. But the year before I was, yeah. Mm. So normally I would travel, I guess, two or three times to the States, uh, maybe to Japan, um, travel around Europe, mostly mm. Scandinavia, uh, and then UK travel as well, and, and then other bits and pieces, kind of as it goes. So, yeah. Awesome. So, it will be nice to get back on a plane again. <laughs> That's fascinating. I didn't even think about the Japanese market for these mm. wines, but uh, sparkling wine from mm. England, I have to imagine, like, what's kind of the appeal to them of these wines, or what's kind of the sales pitch on y'all's end to the Japanese? Uh, I think it's, I think it's stylistic, but I also mm. um, think the fact that it's that it's English, that it's British, um, mm. is helpful. But generally speaking, they um, they enjoy champagne, so mm-hmm. that's you know that's nice. And and uh, if you look at their cuisine in Japan, of course they have so much amazing uh, Japanese food. Um, often, if it's not Japanese, it might be kind of French inspired, which is always quite fun. I think to then start to match Gus Bourne with either. Japanese or more often kind of high-end uh, European style style cuisine. So um, yeah, they seem to they seem to really enjoy it, which is nice. For this conversation, I thought it would be really good for us to talk not just about like what you're doing at Gusborn, but also kind of like the world of English sparkling wine as a whole, not just from like a terroir perspective, because it is really unique, but also what are some of the like geopolitical like things going on in the world that have made it possible for English sparkling wine to exist? It's such a unique thing insofar as the fact that you know, it's one of the oldest wine consuming places. The reason champagne tastes the way that it does because of y'all. Um, but also mm-hmm. it's one of the newest wine places. And I think either you or someone else has talked about that, where it kind of bridges this gap between old world and new world. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe a good starting off point might be hearing how you found yourself teaming up with Gus Bourne. I was working in a, in a Michelin star restaurant in London in La Trompette um, and had been introduced to Gus Bourne. Um, loved the wines uh, and they were really you know they really stood out at the time um, and I was listing them by the glass uh, which in itself even back in 2000 and gosh yeah 2014 even in itself that was something pretty unique and that's really not even that long ago so it's amazing to see kind of how everything's changed recently mm-hmm. Um, so I started listening to them by the glass and I was chatting um, to one of the, the chaps who worked there. And I remember just just saying how excited I was about English wine and about the industry and where it was going and about Gus Bourne and the wines. We got to chatting uh, and chatted some more and some more. And, uh, and then I found myself um, in the role that I am now. So I joined Gus Bourne in 2015. And yeah, and, and and I think when I first joined, gosh, we were such a small team. So I was doing ambassadorial um, sales, bits of export, putting wellies on and getting involved. <laughs> it was great um, and still is great. Uh, as a team, we've grown. So now I get less involved in sort of sales things, but it allows me to be much more kind of support focused in a role and also uh, to get more involved in what Charlie, the hair winemaker, is doing and what John, who's our vineyard manager, is doing and kind of, in a way, be a function that can then communicate all of that 
internally and externally as well. So, yeah. Which is really, I think, the thing that people love about the world of wine, right? Like, it's this combination of, like, vineyard management, it's traditions in the cellar, it's, it's this really interdisciplinary amalgamation of things that, you know, different things will resonate with different people, but you got to be able to present all of that in a way that is digestible and fun and interesting, um, depending on the market that you're in. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun, actually. It's, um, I love to learn about it and I love to chat to the guys about it. And then I have the very fun job of traveling and telling everyone else about it. So, Do you find that you have to, that, not that you have to, but do you find that your, the, the version of the story that you share with people changes much from market to market? I imagine that the way in which US Americans perceive you know, English sparkling wine might be different than the way the French do versus the way the Japanese do, right? Does that approach change at all? That's a really interesting question. I don't think that the message changes at all. I think that perhaps the delivery is different, but that's maybe that's maybe a cultural thing in the sense that I might mm. present myself differently and chat differently, I guess. Mm. In different parts of the world, I'm sure. I'm sure that I probably am, I guess, maybe a bit different in Japan than I would be in Texas, I guess. <laughs> well, in, you know, the other challenge, right, is that so often, especially with these wines, depending on who you're tasting with, they may not have much of a understanding of English sparkling wine, right? So you're not just introducing your brand within kind of the context of English sparkling wine. You're having to introduce mm-hmm. English sparkling wine and Gusborn within that. It's kind of yeah. like the combo, which is, it presents a lot of opportunities for really cool conversations. It's just, a, it's very different if you're having to essentially contextualize the drink, you know, and introduce every aspect of it for people, right? Yeah, that's true. But also you could say that um, about different, um, about different audiences in the same country mm-hmm. as well. So in a sense, it kind of depends who you're talking to. And that's even the same in the UK still, you know, we could find ourselves um chatting to people who are english wine enthusiasts even if they um are private collectors for example um and you know they've tasted they've tasted loads of english wines and loads of different sparkling and stills um and then you know next week we could be chatting to somebody who has never tasted an english sparkling wine even if you know they live 30 miles away from uh, from the vineyards so mm-hmm. I think as such um, a new and emerging region um, and as these wines start to gain more and more recognition, it becomes easier, I think, to to contextualise them and to discuss them. Five years ago, it was completely different. Uh, Mm. And in five short years, I think, it's amazing to see um, how people's... um, how people's palates have warmed to the wine by the same time how their perceptions about English wine have changed as well so um, and I see this especially in the UK I suppose because we have never been in our generations we've never been particularly um, a wine growing region or country Uh, so when I was growing up we used to drive down uh, to the um, to the ferry and we'd take a ferry across to France and we'd drive down to the south of France for our mm. summer holidays for a couple of weeks. And I always remember as we drove through France, you'd start to see vineyards and you'd see all this, um, all these trees and, and, I don't know, apricot trees and all of this kind of stuff that, you know, you just wouldn't ever see in the UK because it's, you know, I don't think anyone grows apricots yet. <laughs> But, um, yes, so I think for me, growing up as a kid, I always used to associate vineyards with um, with holidays or foreign lands and, and never really thought um, about the UK as, as, um, as a wine-growing country. And I think um, probably a lot of people in, in England, I guess, don't think about that. So for a long time, it was about trying to persuade people that actually, yes, we do grow grapes and we can make this amazing wine and that happens less abroad interestingly mm. because there's not that preconception that we don't make wine so yeah it's interesting to see that change and I think 
recently people have become a lot more open and a lot more aware of the wines as well generally as a category well maybe we can dig into like when did it really start when did things really kick off because for a lot of people here in the states Gus Bourne is one of the biggest names that we know but when did vineyards really start getting planted on the southern coast for sparkling wine production Uh, so the first vineyards that were planted for sparkling wines uh, you know, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, those those grapes, and in that style, late eighties mm-hmm. and then early nineties. Um, so um, the owner of Nightember at the time, he started, uh, and then uh, you have other pioneers like Ridgeview, um, also on the south coast, Camel Valley in Cornwall, Bolney, of course, and there are there are there are others, but I suppose probably. I guess the two best known pioneers will probably be Ridgeview and Nightember. Um, and, you know, at the time, I think there was probably quite a lot of scepticism about whether or not these wines, you know, would work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, uh, Nightember entered their wines into blind tasting competitions. They did brilliantly. Um, I think people probably unwrapped the bottles and couldn't believe what they saw mm. on the label and that English wine could be produced in that kind of quality and that style. Uh, and I think that was really the start. Um, but from that, it did take a little bit of time to filter down in terms of um, in terms of people probably understanding the style um, and understanding the potential for quality. And I think you can probably take it to a second wave in the early 2000s when um, some more very brave people who saw what Ridgeview and Nightingale and others had done um, and they saw the potential there. Um, and Gus Bourne is, is one of those, Andrew, um, Andrew Weber, our founder, um, in 2004. Yeah, so I think... Gusborne, um, we could we could say was in the second wave. Andrew um, Andrew Weber, our founder, planted the first mines in two thousand four uh, in Appledore, and um, and from there, you know, we we've we've sort of grown pretty slowly and evolved um, quite uh, uh, quite organically, which is nice. We started with literally four hectares and then planted another four or five hectares and 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 such over the, the first five years or so um and then in 2014-15 we were able to plant some more as well um so now we have vineyards mostly in kent but a little bit in sussex um so yes i think we were part of of that kind of second um second wave of producers and um and from that point you start to see um these wines gain a little bit more traction and a bit more um People are taking a bit more notice of the wines. Um, and then I suppose from then onwards, there's been a steady increase in terms of vineyards being planted and wineries being set up and people joining the industry. And then I, I would think probably in 2000 and somewhere between 2015 and now, maybe 2016, 17, then there was another spike um, in terms of vineyard plantings, again, I think because people started to see what was happening um, and and really see the potential. Um, and I think it's lovely that probably Gus Bourne was part of that, that people were seeing and people were excited about. So, yeah. So, and then that's where we are now. So now we've got, gosh, something like, I think 3,700 hectares planted in the country total uh, which I think someone was saying the other day is pretty much the same as Sancerre and Prefume put together Hmm. that kind of area which is pretty significant really if you think about um, the amount of quality production that could come from that that's really exciting so and it is a relatively speaking broad area, right? Um, you mentioned yeah. Sussex and Kent. For people that maybe don't have their geography 100%, um, yeah. and because there is a fair bit of difference between the westernmost vineyards and the easternmost vineyards on the southern yeah. coast, how would you kind of walk people through the differences of those? 
So probably the top three regions where white homes are produced, um, and this is going from east to west. Kind of going from... From Dover. Yeah, Dover. So we're closest to the continent, right? We're closest to Europe, and then working our way towards the Atlantic, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So just southeast of London, um, around Dover, um, then... Kent starts um, in terms of its vineyards, um, and that will take you all the way west, and and then you have Sussex. And if you wanted a kind of an anchor for Sussex, then you would say maybe somewhere like Brighton. If people know and 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 understand where Brighton is, then you have Sussex, and then further west from there you have Hampshire. So those three um, probably probably make up still the largest proportion of quality wine production in the UK and um, if you go further west then you have Dorset and Cornwall and Somerset and there's a little bit of production there but geographically speaking in the UK probably the best place to grow grapes is the very southeast it's the warmest and the driest and the sunniest part of the UK um, every or, or a lot of our weather comes from the west um, and we're very as an island we're very dominated by uh, weather coming uh, either from the west or the north and I grew up in Somerset on the mm. west coast um, and it's a lot wetter there <laughs> um, a lot a lot wetter and a little bit cooler um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't great wines being produced there um, that's just the Atlantic influence you're getting kind of yes just a lot of rain Unless you find different rain pockets, obviously, you know, Cornwall is, is still one of the best holiday destinations in the UK, and that's right on the western tip. So, um, but what you often find is the further east you go, then of course that rain shadow kicks in, and, uh, and we have uh, we have a lot less rain in the east. So, and as you go further east on a geological level, you're you're encountering more and more of that, like uh, the the chalk itself that everyone always talks about right that you find that kimmeridgian marl the chalk that you know and love in your champagne vineyards that extends across the channel into england the white cliffs of dover being that chalky soil and then Mm -hmm. it goes from being you know a subsoil into a topsoil right it kind of has it, it it varies in terms of how close it is and then where you are there's also that is it green sand that you find as well Yes, exactly. Well, it depends where um, depends where the vineyards are. So actually in Kent, we have a lot of clay. Mm. So you mentioned the White Cliffs of Dover, and that's really interesting. Obviously, the White Cliffs are chalk, and everybody sees them, and they imagine um, swathes of chalk throughout yeah. the whole of the southeast of England. But actually, that ridge um, narrows very quickly as it goes inland, goes north, skirts underneath uh, London, and then and then goes back down south again, but heading west and widens out around Hampshire and Sussex. But Kent, um, conversely, is actually um, much more dominated by clay. It's called like a Wealden clay or a Tunbridge Mm. Wells uh, clay. And that can be quite dense and rich. Um, It can be water retentive, of course. Uh, We're lucky that we don't have a huge amount of rain, which is good. uh, it can compact a little bit as well, but we work um, we work a lot with that to make sure that that's not an issue. Um, but actually, those soils, even though they're not the first that you might think about for England, work really, really well. Hmm. Um, we have a lot of Burgundy clones planted in the vineyard at Gusbourne. And um, the combination of the clay and the Burgundy clones and the lower yields um, means that we get a huge amount of ripeness and, and complexity and um, intensity, I think, in the grapes. Um, but yes, as you go further west, then you do have more green sand, flint, chalk, um, loamy kind of soils as well. And that's a lot of what we see in our Sussex vineyards. Mm. You know, it's interesting, right? Because there's so many ways in which people like to talk about English sparkling wine. And I think, you know, on a geological level, people love to reference, you know, that like uh, chalky subsoil. Um, Temperature is obviously something that plays a role now and, you know, will continue to play a role as other regions that were previously maybe a little cooler or warming up. Um, Mm -hmm. Are there other things that you find to be like really like uniquely 
unique to the region, um, unique to um, Kent and Sussex and Hampshire? I think what currently makes England generally unique as a wine growing area is that it combines it combines old world and new world in the way that it thinks and um and that's exactly it that we were talking about earlier um I think we have so much history in the UK in terms of um consuming wine buying wine importing wine um but we are such um such a a young industry yeah um, which is really exciting in a lot of ways because we're not burdened by centuries or generations of wine laws and um uh and restrictions so we are able to be quite nimble as an industry and, and very um very experimental in a sense, but very innovative as well, which I think is really, really exciting. So um, climatically, perhaps we are um, we are special, especially for sparkling wines, because we are marginal. And so um, you have the influence of the, of the coast, um, especially, um, uh, especially those vineyards which are closer to the coast. Then you have this almost maritime um, climate, which is great in a sense, because it's, uh, you know, it really helps to mitigate any frost risk. Our maritime influence um, and the maritime climate really moderates our yeah. weather. And so it allows us, as a region which technically sits outside that kind of 2850 band that we often think about with latitude, um, we're at 51 degrees where we are in Kent. And so um, the maritime influence really helps us with that. Um, But at the same time, as a marginal climate, I think it's really exciting to grow grapes here because it means that we, especially for sparkling wines, we have this natural um, zippiness and freshness coming through in, in, in the wines as well. So we have climatic advantages, which, you know, at the moment are advantages. But generally speaking, I think what sets us apart um, are probably our winemakers and the vision and the innovative um, way in which people are approaching producing wine in England. You know, the one thing that comes with that, though, that's a bit of a challenge, right, is infrastructurally, especially people on those first and second waves, you know, access to bottling facilities or access to equipment. You know, I remember talking to, I can't remember which winery I was chatting with when I was visiting, but they were like, yeah, there's only a one or two bottling lines. Like if you, if you want to borrow one from someone, or if there's one piece of like irrigation equipment you need, you're going to have to drive like three or four hours somewhere, or it's going to have to get brought in from, you know, mainland Europe. You know, it's not necessarily the easiest thing in the world when you're a very small wine region and there's only like a handful of producers that scarcity and resources becomes a real problem or it can be. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and definitely more so in the early days as well. Um, I think, you know, as the years go on, and they're rushing by very quickly, <laughs> I think people are starting to build more of an infrastructure in the UK now, which is really exciting. Um, because not only then do you have this, um, this growing region, mm-hmm. you also have perhaps... Um, a new cooperage might open up or, um, or it, as you were saying, bottling lines or, I don't know, glass producers, all of these kind of things, which historically we have relied on most likely mainland Europe for, although some stuff comes from other places as well. It's, I think it's interesting. and It'll be really exciting to see how, um, how the development of this industry then impacts other industries, which, you know, used to thrive in the UK um, and then, and then, for whatever reason, whittled away. And it'll be nice to see those come back as well. I think. I think so too. You know, and you were talking earlier about innovation, but especially as you've got more and more producers trying different things. I mean, even within the world of traditional method sparkling wine, there's so many different approaches that you can take, right? You know, and I remember 
chatting with some producers that said, we definitely prevent mallow. We don't want it. This, the showcase here should be like really bright, austere acidity. Like it should have that, you know, quintessential like edge, you know, and then other producers were saying, no, 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 like we're needing to do whatever we can to get the most physiologically right grapes and minimize acidity, which we can do by, you know, barrel fermenting, oxidizing the wine in some degree, going through full mallow. It's interesting to hear all of these different perspectives that are being taken in a place where there isn't necessarily a definitive style yet. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's um, a really exciting um, a really exciting prospect for UK. You know, I'm sure it's the sort of thing that you probably have to field questions about all the time. But with Brexit, that's obviously played a huge role in not just the the way the wines are perceived internationally, but also it's affected the price of these wines internationally. It's affected, you know, aspects of like harvest in some capacity, getting, you know, people to help work. How have you seen in Brexit really changing English sparkling wine over the past like five years? I think Brexit will bring with it limitations and challenges, but there's also opportunities as well. Mm -hmm. So Obviously, as we were speaking about before, and you think about all of our infrastructure, and so much of it is imported at the moment, mostly from mainland Europe. And so that will, um, that will be an, uh, an issue and a challenge that we need to overcome. Um, at the same time, a, a lot of our skilled labour workforce in the vineyards are EU nationals. And so... Because we don't have um, huge numbers of skilled vineyard workers who are based in the UK yet, then of course we have a lot of uh, EU nationals coming, and that's um, that will you know provide, I'm sure, its own challenges. But at the same time, you know, I think uh, these wines are being exported to Europe and um, and to countries outside of Europe as well, um, and I think. The export markets, generally speaking, are growing, and that's really positive. Um, you know, the fact that the pound isn't particularly strong at the moment is positive in terms of selling our wines abroad. I think we'll see in the UK at least um, a rise in prices for wines coming from Europe. That, based with, I think, the fact that people in the UK at least, are more interested in, in drinking local uh, than they were perhaps five or ten years ago. Mm-hmm. We'll start to, to see that shift as well. I think I think ultimately it will change the way that we do business and there's no way that it cannot. But I, I do hope that there are opportunities as well as challenges. Yeah. It was funny when I was flying into uh, Heathrow for the marathon and I'm waiting in line at immigration. There's this one like 60 second video that keeps playing over and over again as you're waiting in line. And it's telling you about all the exciting things going on in England. And they show photos of pubs. They show photos of castles. They show platform nine and three quarters. They're showing all of these things so that all these incoming tourists or travelers can see what 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 is in store for them. Right. And Mm -hmm. there was a, there was a like five second, you know, shot of vineyards. And it was amazing to see how even in 2019 spring, that was already part of the government's kind of like tourism promotional arm. Um, I'm sure you've seen that too, just in the past five, six years, this push on the part of the government to support the industry as a whole, as a tourism destination. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. more than almost any other, winery I visited, Gusborn seemed to have like a really solid tasting room. Y'all seem to have at least figured out that balance of not just making good wine that people can drink or buy at a shop or buy at a restaurant, but also a destination that people can visit and get that story on site. Yeah, absolutely. We have, uh, we call it the nest because, you know, we have the Gusborn geese and they need to live somewhere. So they live in the nest. Well, I know that, but listeners don't know that. What's the story of the Gusborn geese? Let's let people hear that. Ah, so, uh, so Gusborn, the estate, dates back to the 1400s. Um, and the furthest back that we can go, um, the uh, estate was owned by a gentleman called John de Gusborn. 
uh, we found his family crest in Appledore Church, uh, and it's three geese. And in fact, gooseborn um, is obviously goose, um, and then a born is like a dried up riverbed, and that's, I guess, connected to, to the estate. And so when we saw this uh, this family crest with the three geese, um, we really wanted to depict that on the labels. So whenever you see uh, a gooseborn label, you'll see the goose um, looking back at the crest and we've modernized it now um, but there's always three geese on the label there's one on the top one on the label and then one on the cork as well um, so it's those kind of three geese and when we were thinking about what we were going to name our cellar door we thought um, I think we kind of nicknamed it the nest to start with and then as more and more of us started calling it the nest it just kind of stuck and I think it's a really nice name so yes we have um, a great cellar door um, and, a, and a brilliant team there as well, um, which is lovely. Um, and we're, you know, as the years go by, I'm sure it will expand uh, as well. Um, and I think it, it forms a part of, um, of the English wine scene, which is definitely um, increasing. Uh, a lot of people are starting to invest more in cellar doors and invest more in, um, uh, in tourism both UK and international. And I know certainly at Gusborne we've seen, um, obviously pre-lockdown and um, pre-travel restrictions, we saw a huge number of visitors from the US um, and from Scandinavia, uh, from Japan, um, and and from, from many other places in, in the world as well. And of course, because we were only, we were only a, just under an hour from London, by train so it's so easy if you we had a lot of people who would fly into Heathrow they spend a couple of days in London they come down and see the winery and then they shoot off wherever they were going in Europe for example and, and I really hope that that continues post pandemic once we can all travel again but it's um yes it's amazing to see what's happening with with tourism at the moment we're part of um an association called the wine garden of England uh, the seven producers, and uh, and there are different, and so we're we're based in Kent because obviously Kent has always been known as the wine gar as, as the um, uh, as the Garden of England. So we're now the Wine Garden of England uh, Association, but Hampshire has their own association. Sussex does as well. So it's really nice to see uh, all of all of that tourism starting to increase. That's awesome, Laura. Where do you think that? English fizz kind of fits as a category within, you know, restaurants as well as in wine shops. Like where do these wines sit on the shelf? What's the narrative that Gus Bourne and England as a whole is trying to tell with these wines? Uh, I think England um, as a whole, um, and certainly Gus Bourne, um, our narrative is about um, world-class sparkling wines at Gus Bourne. And I think that tends to um, filter throughout the whole industry. I think these wines, for the most part, um, are very dominated by traditional method. Um, certainly anything that's exported to the US currently is all traditional method. And so in a sense, it's easy to compare the wines to other traditional methods, sparklings of a similar price band. So automatically we think of champagne, for example, um, and these wines can be, um, uh, I, I suppose, you know, can be used in a very similar way, even if they're a different style. And so um, in the off trade, for example, or the, the off premise, um, it's, um, I suppose about, I guess, the celebration and, um, uh, and um, finding ways uh, to have people enjoy those wines at home and, mm -hmm. and reason to do that. Um, and then in restaurant settings, uh, certainly in the UK and certainly in my own experience, I think it's been um, really, really successful as um, a by the glass, um, uh, as a by the glass sell. So um, for us, um, and for myself, when I was working as a sommelier, I used them a lot, both as an aperitif um, and as an alternative to the, the very, very traditional aperitif in the UK of a glass of champagne. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I know it's it's different um, in the US. We don't have quite the same kind of cocktail culture in restaurants as as you guys do. And, you like um, a good pins cup, though, a good oh, gin martini. Yes. For sure. And there are a lot of amazing, amazing cocktails um, out there in the UK uh, and some wonderful, wonderful bars as well. Um, But I think generally speaking, people love to have a glass of fizz as an aperitif. And so sparkling wines, English sparkling wine works brilliantly um, for that. But increasingly, I started to use these wines to pair with food as well. So I used to use them on tasting menus um, or just generally because they were by the glass. There were things on the menu starters um, appetizers which would work really really well with sparkling wines and things I mean super classic things like oysters but also at the same time some really lovely like a lightly smoked trout for example with a celeriac remoulade something like that would always be beautiful with a glass of sparkling Um, some really lovely fish dishes um, or sometimes chicken terrine sometimes foie gras with a really rich style of English sparkling works nicely too so there's loads and loads of different pairings, which I think can work. Um, I think in general, we've seen that over the past 10 years or so, just a movement towards using sparkling wine less as kind of like an aspirational product, something that connotes like a specific lifestyle or luxury, and really thinking about these wines as truly food-friendly pairing wines. Um, and I think part of that is you know, in Champagne, a willingness to make wine that isn't just acid and bubbles. You know, you have producers like Vuet and Sorbet, you've got producers, you know, Solos Acolytes, you know, people that are making wines that are truly meant to be consumed with food and not just like on their own necessarily. Uh, And I think consumers in general now are, are moving towards that a little bit. At least we saw that more and more in the wine bar that I ran and you know, obviously a lot of restaurants with tasting menus doing that as well. I mean, one of the most rewarding events I ever did was at a Mexican restaurant with this very traditional dish called chiles and nogada, which is a stuffed poblano pepper. It's stuffed with like, um, like pork and like uh, dried fruit, like raisins and cherries, and then coated in a walnut cream sauce uh, and topped with pomegranate seeds. And it's amazing. It's a super traditional dish that's consumed in Mexico during the month of like, I think September, October, around that time. And the best pairing of, of all the champagnes that we tasted was L'Armandier Bernier's Rosé de Saigny, because it's just that meaty iron oxide, like that really dense style of rosé that, you know, paired so well with the food. So all of that to say that I think that sparkling wine in general is going through a bit of a gastronomic renaissance there. You know, people are seeing it as more than just you know, bubbles and acid. And now I think England can ride that wave really well. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So when it comes to kind of that off premise where it's in a retail shop, in a restaurant, a sommelier can speak confidently about what makes English sparkling wine unique, but what are ways that Gus Bourne is trying to convey that through either packaging or, you know, retail arrangement, where these wines kind of sit on the shelf? What's kind of the setup there? Mm. We um, we worked really hard on packaging. Um, we redesigned our labels, um, although this would be prior to us starting to export to the States. So you, you guys mm-hmm. are only ever seeing um, the new labels, but we worked really hard in terms of uh, the branding. And also uh, we've worked very hard on our gift boxes um, and, and, and tried as much as we can and as, um, and as sustainably as we can to convey this message of um, quality and luxury, I suppose, in a sense, uh, which should hopefully stand out on the shelf. I think, as you say, it's, it's not an environment where there's the same ability to, to sell to a customer and to have also that instant, um, that instant hit of them enjoying this wine at the table, for example, as a guest in a restaurant, um, it makes it a bit more tricky, of course, and especially in um, uh, in a setting where, um, as English sparkling wine, it's such um, a young category still, and it needs mm-hmm. a lot of explaining. So as much as we can, we spend a lot of time uh, doing training, especially in the UK. Um, we spend a lot of time kind of tasting, um, training, chatting to a lot of our off-premise partners and really making sure that 
the guys who work in these shops are able to um, able to speak to to customers and um, and to convey the style and the story and the quality levels of these wines as well. But you know, it's not always possible to get to every corner of the world and do no, that. Totally. But as much as we can, we're trying to at least. Yeah, and hopefully the packaging helps when we can't <laughs> reach that. And in terms of kind of like stylistic character of these wines, I mean. I think the prism through which we see traditional method wine is through champagne, right? And whether we want to talk about it in terms of like English fizz versus champagne or, you know, English fizz versus sparkling wine in general, how would you kind of describe the distinctive character of these wines? And then within that kind of the specific kind of like differences that we're starting to see between producers or between regions? Yeah. So in the early days, I think it was um, a very positive thing to compare English sparkling wine to champagne. We were completely unknown in the late 90s and early 2000s and nobody really ever imagined um, England producing wine. So stylistically and the aspiration of quality, um, those two things match very well with what champagne is is producing and was producing and is producing. Um, And I think as the category has evolved and matured, I think we're now able to say, yes, we've taken a lot of inspiration from champagne in terms of quality and in terms of style, but we're starting to build our own category and our own identity as a wine producer as well. So stylistically, I think you do start to see differences. Certainly, although the climate's very similar, in some ways, it's also different. We talk How so? about we talk about the uh, the growing um, the growing season, a slightly longer season. We know that England has right now a more marginal climate than Champagne does, so it's cooler, um, and this creates the ability for England to produce wines which are. Um, certainly traditional method in style. So you have all that autolysis, um, all the um, uh, the tertiary notes starting to come through in these wines. But also, I think what sets English wines apart is slightly more vibrant fruit. I think sometimes the fruit character can be more present generally, but also there's more freshness behind the fruit as well. So there's lots of um, often, you know, it depends on the producer, it depends on the year and all these kind of things, but often a lot more kind of green apple, zippy citrus notes. Mm-hmm. But there's an intensity behind the fruit at the same time. And I think that's kind of a, a marker and a cool card for me for, for English. Um, and also just a, an increased freshness in a lot of cases. And what are some of those stylistic differences that we're seeing between producers that or, or between regions even? Um, what's starting to emerge there? So I think um, 20 years ago, for example, everything was vintage because the, the industry was so young. So in a sense, it almost wasn't um, possible to create these um, reserve wines to create a non-vintage style. Uh, then 2012 happened, which was a historically awful vintage uh, where some producers literally couldn't produce wine. And um, and I think that possibly contributed as well as um, as well as the fact that these reserve wines were starting to be built up, as well as the fact that actually it's nice to have this differentiation in terms of styles. I think all of those factors have now formed the basis for an increase in non-vintage as well. Mm. Um, uh, They don't necessarily run along the same lines as vintage and non-vintage champagne in terms of ageing, because of course in the UK there's no standards, there's no... um, um, regulations on that. So for us at Gusborne, we've always produced only vintage wines. We don't do anything that's non-vintage. And we've always run, um, I guess, towards a vintage champagne model. So generally speaking, it's at least three years aging on these. And that puts us up in the higher tier of aging as a, uh, as a producer, generally speaking. And then um, there are people who are producing kind of younger, fresher, non-vintage styles alongside um, their vintage wines, mm. as a you know, as a normal house would do. Some people are starting to produce only non-vintage. Now we're starting to see more wines which are not traditional method, mm. but more kind of Charmat method. Um, there's an increase, um, a marked increase in people producing um, more natural wines or pet nat styles or mm-hmm. partly sparkling styles of wine as well. Um, 
So stylistically speaking, you have all of those different styles. And then, although we see that Chardonnay, Pinot Noir um, and Meunier is, uh, they are kind of the classic three, there's a lot of people who are still um, experimenting with either Bacchus or Ortega um, and some of these older kind of more classic English grape varieties that we mm. think of as well. Um, perhaps more so for the Charmat style. So there's a mm-hmm. kind of a fresher, fruitier element there too. And in terms of regulations, you were talking about that a little bit, that some people are, you know, playing around with Charmat methods. Some people are working with these other grapes within that Sussex PDO. Is there any like rules about, um, you know, Elevage, how long does the wine need, the wines need to be on lees, anything like that? Um, that's a good question. N- n- uh, I don't believe so. No, I think it's a geographical. Mm. Uh, okay. designation only so if you um if you look on the bottle of um an english sparkling wine the pdo or the, the yeah the, the 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 regulation that we use is in quality english sparkling wine and that um designates that it needs to be traditional method uh, it needs to be produced from um six grape varieties which is chardonnay Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, Pinot Precoce, Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc. They're the six permitted. Um, and uh, it has to have a minimum of nine months aging on the lees. Um, it has to be bottle fermented. And there are a few other kind of mm-hmm. um, very um, generic kind yeah. of um, uh, regulations. <laughs> but apart from that, that's all we're running on at the moment, which is brilliant in one sense, because I think as a young industry, it's actually really nice to be innovative and experimental and to have the ability to be able to do that. I think that's lovely. Um, But it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future in terms of quality or geographical designation. No, for sure. And of those three main grapes, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Meunier, do you find that one does particularly well in Gusborn, at least within your own experience? The common adage, right, is in Champagne, at least, is that Meunier is kind of the salt, the little bit of seasoning that's used um, for fruitiness. You know, Chardonnay is there with, you know, acidity. Pinot Noir is there for structure. Um, do you find that that similar sort of just, um, you know, basic understanding of the cepage is true also in England or does that make up change a little bit? I think it's broadly true. Yeah. And it's broadly similar. Um, at Gusborne, certainly, what we're finding is certain blocks of our vineyards are really shining a light on Chardonnay. Mm. And then, of course, there are certain parts of the vineyard which are really highlighting Pinot Noir as well. So uh, we make the Blanc de Blanc mm. as our kind of very um, quintessential um style of chardonnay kind of expressing the very best of of the chardonnay from the vineyard Um, and we've just started um to release our blonde noir 2016 um which is kind of the the yin to the yang or however you want to to say it um in terms of pinot noir Um, so as these vines mature it's interesting to see uh what's what's happening in different parts of the vineyard and different blocks i do think that Chardonnay can really shine in the UK. Awesome. Thank you again. Really appreciate it. Enjoy your evening. Tell the family I say hi. We'll talk soon. Thanks. And happy Thanksgiving. You too. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I'll take it. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Bye. I hope you all really appreciated me fucking up that goodbye with Laura, wishing her a happy Thanksgiving when in England. We all know they don't celebrate it over there. Um, but I hope you all listening, those of you in the States that are listening to this episode, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, uh, whether it was with like one or two people or whether you went to a super spreader event. We've got a lot of fun episodes planned for the remainder of 2020. So make sure that you are subscribing to Buy the Glass to get all of your audio content needs. Uh, we're on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, all those other weird ones like, um, I can't remember their names off the top of my head, but they're out there if you listen to podcasts on any of those other things. Yeah, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.